Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. So before we get into, you know, too much of kind of, uh, you know, what's going on currently and, and your exciting business that you're building, let's just give us a little bit of a, a, a kind of summary of your career. I know it's difficult for yourself. You've been doing it for, for a few years now. Just give us a little bit of a summary uh, of your career to date. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess my career is like I have a background in mathematics and uh, uh, multiple multiple masters as well in machine learning and AI, and um, also PhD also in uh, applied graph theory um, using AI, um, and then gone on to become associate researcher, visiting researcher, respectively. All throughout that time as well, I have. Uh, worked for uh, in the financial services um, in the area of quantitative trading automated market making um, and um, applying AI inside of uh, quantitative research for building models and getting those models into production so that's in a nutshell my uh, Korea. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's good. And there's a lot of stuff to break down in there, that's for sure. So let's just kind of go into your into your current company, Churn Tech. Um, tell us a little bit about the company and kind of what, what, what you do as a, as a business. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, like uh, Turing Tech formed uh, from four co-founders who also have very similar backgrounds to myself, all uh, PhD, two of whom went on to become assistant and associate professor respectively as well and um, we all worked within financial services industry and they kind of uh, saw those potential use cases with me of uh, essentially what we're seeing now generative AI and getting code into a much more efficient uh, and optimized form so there was a lot of problems inside of uh, those institutions in terms of technical debt for code. So how do we get code into production? How do we make code use less resources? And those are the kind of questions that led to the combination of us publishing a very uh, commercially famous well-known paper, uh, Darwinian optimization that uh, proved given any piece of code, we can uh, optimize it by generating new code, reducing the memory, CPU and energy consumption. And that ultimately uh, helped to pave the way as we formed the company that you see now, Turing Tech, which deals with model optimization and code optimization. And I, I just want to keep on kind of that early start. Um, you obviously mentioned that you published the paper, but you know, writing a paper and taking the step to actually start your own business, kind of doing it, they are two very, very different things. So, you know, obviously you have, like you mentioned, there's this, this four co-founders in the business. And at what point did you go like, let's do this, let's take the plunge, we're starting our own business, let's absolutely go for it. Can you kind of yeah. remember that kind of moment that, that you had? Yeah, we were playing foosball in the university common room. <laughs> And, you know, uh, we were discussing these ideas. We were talking about what the future could be. We were talking about optimization. We were talking about code. And, you know, we were talking about the, uh, the potential use cases within different institutions, uh, financial, technology, retail. And then, you know, it was like, hey, you know, actually, we, we could combine our knowledge and build an idea out of this. We could probably look to see nobody's optimizing code 
and nobody's using machine learning on this. And this is before the advent of Copilot and you know Autocomplete and different kinds of products out there that are coming in the market in the complementary space to us. So we were like, okay, so we set about working together in stealth, getting our IP, building out those machine learning models, building out what would be turn out to be uh, this research. And we were doing this like probably nine years ago, right? And then we realized we had something. We decided that we want to do this properly and spin this out as a startup. And we also realized at the same time that, look, we come from banks. And if some guys come up to us and tell us, hey, you know, like we can do X, Y, and Z, we'd want to see the proof on the pudding. So let's do the scientific paper. And as you can kind of see, that's the basis and the reason why we put it. And it got into a top tier conference, peer reviewed, et cetera. Uh, won uh, respective awards from Google and Microsoft. Um, and um, we realized, let's use that as a springboard, show that this is what we're going to build, and this is the proof in the pudding, and get on the journey for building the company. So we that was the eureka moment for us from the moment we did that foosball. That's, that's, that's such a great... I, I remember, I remember beating Mike... <laughs> I remember beating Mike at foosball, you know, so there we go. That's that's the memory you need to have. I like it a lot. <laughs> so, you know, a, again, like we mentioned, four co-founders and, um, you know, officially the company has been going since kind of 2018, I believe. Yeah. Um, right. And, you know, we, we've chatted to a, a, a variety of, of business leaders, especially recently and talking about that dynamic of the the, the co-founder. Um, you know, we've had some people who say I completely love going into a business with someone I don't know um, because then they can kind of, we can get to know each other and there's, you know, if, if it doesn't work, we can kind of easy split. Other people go, you know, family, I couldn't imagine doing this with like family or best friends. Like this is yeah. brilliant. I couldn't do it anywhere else. You, as you mentioned, you were all friends, you know, yeah. with, with the hindsight of kind of, you know, five, six years, uh, you know, of, of this specific business, obviously you mentioned it's almost a decade since you started doing it with that hindsight, how do you kind of feel about that relationship? And was there anything that was kind of like at, at those early times where we're like, oh, maybe we're too close, maybe this is not going to work? Or were you just fully into the into the journey as a collective? I think I completely get those points, what you mentioned, they're very valid, um, you know, uh, it's a marriage, either way you look at it, right? So whether you know each other or you don't know each other, it's a marriage. And, you know, obviously, if you don't know each other, it's an arranged marriage. And, you know, if you know each other, then, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, you, you, you have a very, very close relationship marriage, right? So you know each other for a while. So... There's, of course, pluses and minuses for both. But for us, I guess, like, because we were friends, we were close, uh, similar backgrounds, similar ideals, working together as a cohesive mind, doing things, you know, with a kind of unanimous decision on it. That worked really well. Um, and then, of course, like, there are difficulties because, as you see, you know, like, you become close as founders. So trickiest part is to tell a founder I think it should be this way or I think it should be that way or you need to be able to listen to one another um, and, and that's and that's part of it so leading the team but yeah like it worked out well for us 
No, absolutely. That that uh, that marriage analogy is absolutely spot on. I, I like that a lot. But you know, one of the one of the key things, especially in an early stage business, that you you would have gone through and you've been through many rounds of funding. Um, it's really really key. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about that kind of funding journey that you've had to this point, and any kind of steps that you've got along the way, or, or tips that you can you can uh, give to our audience? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, our funding journey was. We did, uh, you know, we had the company, we released the paper. Um, we, at the pre-seed stage, we received a number of term sheets. We went for the company that was, we went for the firm that was well known for deep tech investment. Um, that was IQ Capital, where we had strong support from them. Um, and then we followed on with subsequent round with Stealth Investment as well. Um, and that was from speed. And then we went into our series A. I think that throughout that journey, I can tell you like, um, raising capital is never easy. Um, you have to have a lot of interesting proof points and you have to have traction. And it's important as well to know the landscape because dealing with funding is different to dealing with clients. Um, and they both have their own difficulties, but the thing for us, I guess, is like our strength, it lies within getting good relationships. So if you have good relationships with clients and you have good relationship with VCs, then you, know, you end up having access to that capital essentially. So I guess for your listeners and people in that space, I think it's important for them to understand that this is not um, for everyone. So you have to be committed to your, uh, uh, your idea and you have to find a good market fit for your idea. And once you have found those things, then definitely capital will be forthcoming. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, just kind of sticking with Turin Tech, um, the other really, really important thing, especially for scanning a tech business like you are, is putting the right talent around you. And before we get too much into kind of acquiring that talent, I'm just intrigued in yourself as, as kind of your leadership style, you know, you from early in, in the company, you go from the person who's like, for example, making the product to now someone who's managing a team of people um, having to look at long term strategy and kind of changing the way that you do things within the company. How have you found that over kind of the last five years of, of the, the actual company journey, kind of that transition from builder to, to leader? Yeah, I mean, look, we're still going through learning. We're still there to learn. We don't know it all, but we have definitely transitioned. We transitioned from working uh, from my desk at university with like three, four of us on a one person desk, okay, to having a nine person team, to moving to over 30 people and 40 and so forth, right? So that transition has taken phases every step of the way it's been horizontal so anyone can get hold of me unfortunately i'm too busy now right so it's not as easy but people can pop by and try and see if i'm available and grab hold of me for five minutes so in that respect we've kept a very flat structure but at the same time we know as the company gets bigger and bigger there will be a hierarchy in place 
Um, so for our next phase, we already have that plan that, you know, we have a lot of people reporting to a lot of people and so forth. But still within the structure that we have right now, we have organized it into teams. We've got a data science, we've got R&D, we've got experimental, we've got technology and engineering, we've got heads for each of those sections and so forth. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as far as building that talent, um, you know, kind of definitely furthering on the work that the, the kind of core four of you kind of started, how have you found that experience? And, you know, there's a lot of negativity and uh, in, the, in the press a lot, um, especially about like, you know, a bit of a talent shortage. How have you found building that team to really kick your, your, your company onto the next level? Sure. So, um, I understand you're correct in what you've mentioned. We've spoken to a number of companies and um, talent is always hard to find. Um, but it also depends what talent and what your niche is. So we have a very good, strong network and relationship with both clients, financial institutions, technology firms, the likes of Google, Facebook and Microsoft and banks, as mentioned. And we also have a network within very well-known professors and through our network, we have access to a lot of very strong talent that would otherwise be very difficult for other organizations to obtain. So on the technical side, definitely we have access to that. And we have, we're inundated with a lot of CVs and a lot of talent of very high end, high caliber people of various different backgrounds all over Europe, all over the world who are happy to be in London coming to London want to join us so we don't have that issue and that's why um, our staff retention rate is extremely high so as a team the guys do a lot of things together as well I wish I had the time to go and join them for drinks all the time for instance but you know they have um, their things they go some of a few of them go yoga they go dancing together and so forth so the structure of the team here is very cohesive it's different to some other places um, where people just do their thing and then they go off home to their friends and families and their work life and their private life is completely different. It's not like that here. Um, so that's also a factor when we look for people. And I also think that's a factor when people are looking for uh, jobs and opportunity. They probably don't want to do the same of what they were doing before and they want to do something new and they want to do something innovative. And so we don't have that issue, but I do completely accept that from what I've spoken to clients and others, that there's a difficulty in getting data scientists and researchers in this area, machine learning specialists, uh, people who have uh, specialist uh, knowledge as well in certain coding languages. It's, it's very tough out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I doing kind of the research and kind of getting ready to, to kind of chat to you, obviously, you know, your company is absolutely on the cutting edge of kind of technology as it stands currently. And there's this incredible paper that's frequently, uh, you know, kind of cited uh, by the, the Institute for the Future um, from about 2018. So kind of, you know, in the genesis of, of, of Turin Tech. And it's at 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't been invented yet. So again, kind of as far as skilling people, you know, upskilling people and really getting people ready for these jobs, that's that's an incredibly difficult thing for higher education and, and for, you know, government bodies trying to do this. But, you know, as, as a company that is at the cutting edge, have you found that you've had to kind of reskill people and, you know, they may have the pieces to the puzzle, but don't necessarily have the exact skills for that job. Um, how, how have you found kind of that, that recruitment side of things? I think it's part of human tenacity to evolve and learn. 
um, someone who's not a data scientist at all and comes from a non-scientific background can quite easily become a scientific uh, expert and become a data scientist, especially if they use our product, which you know makes everything easier for them, right? Um, so I think that uh, yes, we do see that. Regarding our team, like um, it happens automatically and naturally. We have one guy, he was front-end developer. He liked being a front-end developer and he was kind of pushed to be a back-end developer and he became front and back. So now he can do back-end development as well as front. We have somebody who was very particular on his uh, AI standards. Um, and then he started incorporating a lot of ethics and improving his skills. So people do that by discussion with the rest of the team. So the knowledge that they have is shared amongst each other. So no one individual can know all of machine learning or as you try to term it, the wider term, all of AI. But a bunch of individuals know enough to be able to share that knowledge amongst each other and transfer those skills. So it's different for us in the sense that, you know, like um, we don't worry about the upskilling because it happens naturally within the team. Um, and people learn and evolve very quickly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And let's kind of stick on that AI theme and quite intrigued about your personal journey because obviously, you know, AI has been going for a while, but it's definitely kicked on in the last few years for sure and become very, very much more mainstream. But, you know, kind of yourself and your personal kind of growing up, um, at what point did you realize that this AI thing is going to be something that you can build a career in and that you're you're very interested? Is, is there anything like any kind of core memory that you have around uh, AI and kind of the, the genesis of your, your interest in it? Yeah, when I was a kid, when I used to play like, you know, games, chess, Go, for example, right? Um, I remember that time, uh, IBM had a product that they had built that would pay that would play against uh, the then famous uh, Russian chess champion Kasparov, I think it was. I remember, um, and you know it won a game against him, and I was like, oh wow, this is very interesting. And uh, you know, so from my younger days of understanding, oh wow, you know, like. AI can be used to play chess. You can have like real opponents. You know? it, it was very, very, not the kind of um, techniques that we see today, right? But you know, like I'd say like 90s, early 90s, there was a lot of things going on that piqued my interest and said, oh, I want to be involved in AI. I want to be up there in AI. And then um, obviously, like I started studying and learning and working in areas that hadn't had AI. So uh, a lot of uh, financial research um, trading wasn't using AI at the time. Um, so you're looking at how you can implement it. And then AI exploded with the advent of big data. Right? Everybody started talking about big data. And then suddenly, you know, people started seeing the possibilities of what they could do with that data and learning insights. And then from that, people started talking about, oh, you know, can we, can we start, you know, generating stuff using AI? And then you have things like DALI, right, generating images, you know, from prompts. And, you know, there's more things to come. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk uh, recently, um, you know, within the last few weeks, we've had Mo Gaudat, who was the CEO of Google X coming out and saying that, you know, kind of AI is, you know, generative AI is a more pressing kind of crisis than the, you know, climate change. Um, And that's something really needs to be done about kind of, you know, making sure that it doesn't take a negative uh, turn, shall we say. Um, You know, obviously it's your business, but taking a broader view on the, on the industry, um, granted it's, it's a, it's a big space. How do you kind of see the future of AI? Do you, are you largely positive about it? And and if if there's improvements that could be made, if you we could sit you down with some government officials and say these are the changes that need to be made to make sure that nothing goes heavily wrong with this, what would those changes be? Yeah, so it's twofold. So um, what's the future for AI, and what are the changes that could be made to ensure that things don't go wrong? Right. So the first thing I guess is. The future for AI is very positive. I believe it's here to help enrich people's lives. There's a lot of things that could potentially happen and people are talking about. Like, um, I guess uh, AI-assisted driving, right? Uh, I mean, you know, it's nice, for instance, like in the future to have, you know, uh, you go to the station and your own car can pick you up. You know, I'm not saying that we're at the stage today, but let's look at some optimistic parts, right? You know, your own car picks you up and takes you back, or you can drive back. But the convenience of that, so you're not cluttering the streets with parked cars all the time, right? Which, you know, makes it difficult for people to navigate. The cars are at home, and whenever people need to be collected, their car just comes out and gets them, takes it back. Great. Traffic management systems as well. So you can know ahead of time, oh, that car park is likely to be full, right? Um, Don't take this route, take that route. We're already seeing this at the moment. But, you know, right now, like, I can find my own routes, (laughs) you know, that is better than the route that uh, Google may suggest to me. So we all have much more sharper on that. Also, generation of voice, right? We're already seeing that. We saw that in some movies. so in the future, I see more of that. And then of course, um, more with code, products, code optimization. Uh, people are going to have more and more code in the space and they're gonna have AI code. And then they'll want that code to be optimized so that it uses less resources because AI is costing a lot in terms of cloud, in terms of compute. We see all the news, especially with generative AI, you know. Uh, the kind of energy consumption. So everything has to go forward in an ESG-friendly way. That's what people are looking at. So I see a much more rosier future. I don't see AI replacing jobs. I see AI augmenting jobs. Um, And on the second part of your question on what needs to change, so people are talking a lot about uh, regulation and ethics and stuff. Those are all good. So I guess that um, people need to be more conscious of what the AI is and what they're using. And what do we mean by that? What are we talking about machine learning models? What does the model do? What's the level of transparency? What's the explainability in that? Those are the kind of things I guess that um, would have to change today. So people would need to have more insights and granularity on that. 
it would have to be gone on the days that this is a black box, I don't know what it's doing. There has to be some measure of explainability on that. Um, and we are starting to see that. I think that, as you mentioned, if the government got sat down and said, you know, what are we going to do here? Like cybersecurity defense, you know, uh, you know, call a COBRA meeting, you know, because they're worried about some AI being used to do something in, you know, an election. And I say, whoa, 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 wait, there's still an endpoint. It's not some automatic system doing this. This is a user. This is an individual. So think about the user and the user's intent rather than thinking about this as some sort of, you know, technology babble that does things by itself. That's that's a really interesting point. And, you know, when you are reading various things, especially in like a, a newspaper or something like that to do with AI, with someone who lives and breathes it day to day, do you get a little bit frustrated about some of the uh, the rhetoric that's put out there? Um, you know, as someone who, who does it every day. And if there's any kind of myth busting that you could do for the common man on the street, is there is there anything that you'd like to kind of point out that is just blatantly not true? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I was called into a call for LBC. Um, and, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of fear mongering, right? You know, AI is going to replace your jobs. AI could turn around and do something dangerous, you know. Um, and of course, I read that in, in, in newspapers. Um, and the media, I guess, tends to be attuned to something that is sudden and new and the negatives of that. Like we, we know this from in the past when um, I think before I was born, um, when papers used to be done by manual work and printing was a trade and then computers were coming along or automated systems to replace that and there was a lot of fear mongering but those people are truly not out of jobs today right we just got new jobs so new markets have been built and that's what I want us to be kind of pushing to people so people understand that um, it's down to the individual on how they're going to use AI. It's not um, something that is uh, going to work against our society and work against the things that we want to accomplish, right? You know, if someone wants to use AI to um, plagiarize a document, you could, you know, they could just as well have hired a professional to do it. It's just the AI is that professional. And maybe you only needed to pay the cloud compute for doing it, right? And similarly, you know, if somebody wanted to use AI to help improve the way they write emails, that's great, isn't it? If how many times I go into my email and I write the same type of, like I write yours sincerely, and then signature. Yours, thankfully, then signature. Isn't it nice that when I'm writing my email and just when I finished, automatically it kind of knows he's going to write yours sincerely because of the context of this email. And, and things like that, right? You know, to give you insights already in your, in your email box to tell you and remind you, you need to get to this guy. This was the conversation. You're going to want to speak to this client, helping you to improve your efficiency. Yeah. The advent of the smartphone 
just allowed us to have the calendar on the front of the smartphone so you could see what your meetings were, right? And like that, having AI is going to allow you to do things that you would not normally have thought that you could be able to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and keeping along that kind of positive side of things, you know, obviously, as we have already kind of covered in, in depth, AI is, is definitely your business. But outside of AI, is there a particular um, technological development that really, really gets you excited that you kind of go, this is going to be really interesting? Um, as, as I mentioned, not, not AI based. Yeah, I think uh, non-AI based is uh, in the area of uh, high performance computing, edge computing. People are working on new methods and more software based approach. Uh, and what also excites me as well, like I know our product is AI based, but in some ways, um, there's a lot of automation and improvement in techniques. So also the code area, code tools, code assistance tools, right? Um, improved automation processes for that, improved deployment um, and optimizing code, of course. So those are the things that I see um, definitely is, 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 is gonna be quite a game changer, yeah. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to bring you the Good News Postcard. Leslie, today your question comes from Holly, age 10. Hi, I'm Holly from Jill Dando News at Casabatch Primary School. And I'm wondering if you could live on another planet, what would it be and why? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so Holly, if I could live on another planet, it would probably be Mars. I heard that, you know, they're going to set up a, a spaceport there and, you know, like um, Elon Musk is going to take us there. So maybe, you know, we we can uh, um, terraform the entire planet and uh, make it something fantastic. <laughs> that's, that's a great answer to a great question, yeah. Leslie. <laughs> I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we, we are business leaders, so we have to ask you the question, yeah. what to you makes a great business leader? I think what makes it great if you can earn the respect of your peers and the trust of your peers and you can lead them along a journey and work with clients who then later become your peers and friends. I think that for me is a good business leader. I think it's very easy to make money and money is just one variable and factor of being a great business leader. If you make a hundred million, okay, you made a hundred million, but if you made that along the way without people to support you, it's not really the same thing. You're not really uh, a business leader in, in my, in my in, you know, that, that's, that's you, you're good at business, but I think being a business leader is much more. Yeah. No, and more fun great... and more fun as well. Being fun, <laughs> yeah. doing fun stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um, do you have any kind of final words for our audience today, uh, Leslie? Yeah, I guess uh, don't be afraid to play and experiment with AI. Um, use what you can find out there, the products that are out there at the moment. Um, there's quite a lot of them. Um, OpenAI, ChatGPT is a good start, for example. And be familiar and see how it works and read about it and make your own decisions.
Yeah, no, hundred percent. And if people wanted to to follow your journey, how would they? Uh, how would yeah, they? Yeah, sure. Touring Tech website, uh, touringtech.ai. Um, and if you want to contact us, you can contact us there. Um, and I'm also based in London, and I'm always happy to have nice coffees and uh, coffee walk uh, in a in a park nearby. So yeah, I'm always reachable. We're always reachable. <laughs>